So I'd like to begin by really just offering a very warm welcome to you all and some introductions to begin um, for those of you who don't know us. Um, I'm Christina, this is Mark and Sharon. And during the retreat, Luis is here, who will be offering the yoga sessions during the retreat. Okay. Um, I feel it's something of a, an honor and a, a privilege to welcome all of you here. I know how much effort it takes for you, many of you probably, to carve out this period of time to come on retreat and, and to appreciate, I think, the, the worthiness of, of what a retreat can offer. And it's actually been quite a few years now since uh, John Kabat-Zinn and John Tisdale and I offered a retreat of this nature here at IMS. It's really, in a way, dedicated uh, to so many of you who, in both your personal and your professional lives, are really, really um, undertaking a pretty profound commitment to understand and to apply and to embody uh, mindfulness in your life. I think coming on retreat is, is for many of you, probably a, a furthering and a deepening of that commitment in this very experiential format. And of course, you know, this is, this experiential format is truly the classroom, isn't it, of our personal understanding of mindfulness and of insight. Now, I'm very aware, uh, although it might not seem like it to you, I, I, I'm very aware that a week feels like a very short period of time. Uh, tomorrow you might start to say, this feels like a very long period of time. But I'm very aware it's a very short period of time, and, and, and I'm aware of you know, some of the constraints of, of that brevity, that there's much that we could actually do here together. You know, and I'm sure that many of you probably value coming into a situation like this, some of the peer contact and some of the, the networking that can happen. And just to assure you that on the last full day of the retreat, we will be offering that opportunity. Um, but the primary focus, of course, on the, this retreat is, is going to be really exploring our own practice, our own embodied practice. Um, and in the context of, of this teaching. Now, I would like this evening just to begin by, by putting a, a, a kind of a question or a question on the table. I think we, we would probably, hopefully, all recognize that all contemporary forms of mindfulness-based applications and, of course, all forms of insight meditation have their roots in this in a very ancient teaching where 2,500 years ago the Buddha really spoke about this possibility of liberating our hearts and of cultivating a path to bring an end to emotional and psychological turmoil and distress and confusion and in truth, all, all kind of practices of, of mindfulness can really be mapped on to these very ancient and traditional pathways. Um, but there is a dialogue that is happening between contemporary mindfulness and some of the classical traditions. And I think it's a very important and a very rich dialogue. And I, and I use the word dialogue very, very specifically rather than argument. Um, um, but I, I see both within traditional and co contemporary uh, communities, you know, that there are people who feel it, it's really quite important in, in, or useful in some ways 
to sever contemporary mindfulness applications from its traditional roots in the teaching. And I think there's, there's benefits and drawbacks to that position. And there are those who feel it's really deeply important, um, uh, particularly for trainers and teachers of mindfulness, not for clients and patients, to really have a very deep personal, intellectual, and um, experiential understanding of the relationship between contemporary mindfulness and its origins. There's benefits and drawbacks to that position too. I think this is going to be a kind of an ongoing dialogue, and I don't think it needs a right answer. I think the dialogue in itself is the richness and the aliveness. Um, over the last 10 years, since I first started uh, offering retreats within communities of, of secular mindfulness teachers and and beginning to teach on postgraduate trainings in MBCT particularly. Certainly the, the feedback that I've had from people in those situations is that there's a tremendous benefit to what we're doing right now. There, there's a tremendous benefit in, in each of us having the, 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 this depth, this embodied depth of understanding and, under, uh, and, and really understanding the teaching and its origin. So I guess my, by my being here, it, it kind of shows which of those sides of that dialogue I happen to hang my hat. <laughs> so here we are, here we are, beginning this retreat. And this evening, we'd like to give you just a little bit of an overview of the retreat and, and not keep you too long, because I know many of you have traveled today and some of you may even be as jet-lagged as me. I'd like to offer you um, a, a, one of the recent short poems by Mary Oliver. She says, I've decided to find myself a home in the mountains, somewhere high up, where one learns to live peacefully in the cold and the silence. It's said that in such a place certain revelations may be discovered, that what the spirit reaches for may be eventually felt, if not exactly understood. Slowly, no doubt. I'm not talking about a vacation. Of course, at the same time, I mean to stay exactly where I am. Are you following me? That was in the little piece, by the way. Um, and I love this piece of writing because here, you know, coming here and retreat, of course, we all make this geographical shift to, to IMS and to Barry, you know. So in one way, you know, we're not high up in the mountains, but we're certainly in the cold and, you know, to some degree, the, the silence. And, of course, we, we bring with us the minds and the hearts and the bodies that are part of and present in all of our lives. And making a geograph geographical shift doesn't necessarily in any way in itself guarantee anything. Sometimes I reflect on some of the words that the Buddha said when he really invited people to practice. And, and, and he gave this encouragement to, to disentangle from the world and to establish ourselves in mindfulness and in solitude. Clearly when he was speaking about disentangling, he wasn't speaking about pushing the world away, rejecting the world, but disentangling, disentangling and establishing ourselves in mindfulness and in solitude. I think that this is a guidance that, it, that it's somewhat helpful to reflect on because it's really about intention, isn't it? It's about the kind of intentions that we bring here and, and to really acknowledge the way that our intentions actually shape our retreat. 
I mean, any of you who are working in the field of, of applied mindfulness-based applications probably really recognizes the, the emphasis and the pivotal role that intention plays and how much that is stressed. And certainly in classical teachings, it's often said that the whole of the path rests upon the head of the pin of intention. So, as we begin, I, I think it is important almost to kind of set that intentionality for ourselves. You know, what does this retreat mean for us? What is it dedicated to? What kind of intentions are we bringing to the retreat? And I think that for everyone arriving here, that there is a kind of there is a, physical, a psychological and an emotional reorientation that takes to be here, because we need to be very realistic. I mean, to acknowledge that that your your life will follow you onto your cushion. You know, your your life will follow you on into your walking path, and why would it not? And what does it mean to be present in the midst of all of that and to disentangle with a kind of pretty clear sense of intentionality? There's a couple of reflections that I would really invite you perhaps to, 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 to take in if, if you're willing. And it's really in the form of, of two questions. And one of those questions would be, what would it be most helpful for you to, to put down a little or to disentangle from in order to be here most wholeheartedly and most fully? And the other question is, what would it be most helpful for you to, to truly cultivate in order to be here most wholeheartedly and most fully? And there's no right answer to this. But, you know, when we look at what is most helpful for us to put down to be here most fully, uh, that's not a question just for retreat. It, it's a question for, for many, many areas of our lives, our relationships, our work, our interface with the world. Sometimes it, it's helpful for us to put down our, our projects, our agendas, to create a more open space of just not knowing how all of this is going to unfold. For most of us to be here most wholeheartedly and most fully, it might ask of us to put down some of our habits, some of our habits of busyness, of doing, of rearranging the conditions of our lives. It might be the habits of judgment, comparing, leaning forward into the future or backward into the past. And again, when we maybe reflect on the question of what is it most helpful for us to cultivate, again, that the answers to that might be very personal and they might be really quite universal. I think often to be here most fully, it's really helpful to cultivate a, a sense of contentment. You know, I don't know what your life is like, but in my life, I don't have an army of people running around you know, cleaning up after me and doing the shopping and putting the food on the table, you know, and taking care of things. So in some ways, you know, that quality of contentment of really resting in that sense of being cared for and having what we need is, is, is actually, I think, quite helpful. It might be qualities of kindness, of compassion, of care, of spaciousness, of stillness. All of these qualities are, are not just the outcomes of, of a week of, of heroic striving. They are qualities that, that we really do cultivate in the moment, that we, we bring into being. They really enable us to, to take our seat here and, and to find our feet in our walking path with, with a sense of a, a, a genuine, caring, caring curiosity. And, and to me, that this is kind of the essence of mindfulness, that caring curiosity about what, what this moment truly is, how we are 
in this moment. And allowing that, that spaciousness to, to emerge. Okay, I said I wouldn't keep you very long and I've already kind of gone past my space. <laughs> Hello. Welcome. It's really uh, fun to sit up here and look out and think, oh, yeah, I know you from that place and that place and uh, meet everyone else for the first time. So there are a couple of different uh, things that came up in my mind listening to Christina um, about disentangling, about disengaging, and they're actually two different stories. Uh, one is the story of a friend of mine who came here to do a retreat, and he's a conductor, he's a musical conductor. And his yogi job while here was cleaning one of the bathrooms. During the course of the retreat, which we knew ahead of time, he had to leave for one night uh, to conduct at Carnegie Hall a memorial concert for someone that had been very dear to him. So he just felt he absolutely had to go. So we figured it all out, like the limo would come, and um, he didn't have to go home. He could stay in a hotel so he wouldn't be checking his messages and getting all involved in, in his ordinary life. He could basically stay silent except for the interactions he needed to have. So he said when he came back that he was up on the stage and he was conducting at Carnegie Hall and he was like, all that grandeur and elegance and magnificence and the emotion of the concert. And the thought came to his mind, I wonder if someone else is cleaning that bathroom while I'm gone. <laughs> so I love that story because in that moment, who was he, right? Was he the conductor? Was he the bathroom cleaner? He was just a person. And he actually was both <laughs> the conductor and the bathroom cleaner. So. There's a little bit of that that happens for all of us in coming here on retreat where we let go of a certain sense of identity or identification. And, and that really is something, it, it seems a little risky sometimes, but in, in moving to that space, to simply being, uh, there's such a tremendous amount that opens up of, of authenticity and spaciousness and so on. So it's actually a part of the exploration. And the other story that came to my mind uh, was one of my own, where in 1984, we invited this uh, very renowned Burmese meditation master named Saira Upandita here to lead a retreat, to lead a three-month retreat that I and many of my friends were going to sit under his guidance. And we'd never met him before. Uh, those of us who were, who were going to be here, but we heard he was such a great teacher. So we invited him. And um, the format of the retreat over the three months was that he, six mornings a week, he would meet with each person individually for about 10 minutes, at, at the most 10 minutes, for what has for some reason traditionally been called interviews, right? <laughs> Um, and in that 10-minute period, you would say something directly about your practice, so he would have some data, like I was very sleepy or I was very restless or it was glorious or whatever, um, and then he would respond with some feedback. So uh, he also, it turned out, was an extremely, still is, I think, uh, fierce, intense, demanding, demanding teacher. It was just this kind of style. And he had this sort of pedagogy where he would tend to say the same thing again and again and again and again and again until something inside of you shifted and then he'd go on to something else. So by the time he came, meditation practice had really been at the center of my life for about 14 years. And we went through this whole period 
day after day after day after day after day, when I would go in to see him, and I would describe something about a sitting period and a walking period, and he would look at me and he would say, well, in the beginning it can be like that. And I would sit there and think, I'm not a beginner. I've been practicing for 14 years. And that'd be all he said. That was the whole sum of our interview. And I'd leave, and I'd sit, and I'd walk, and I'd come in the next day. Maybe I'd describe something totally different. And he would look at me, and he would say, well, in the beginning, it can be like that. And I think, I'm not a beginner. (laughs) And I'd leave, and the next day, and the next day, every single day for an eternity, no matter what I said, he would respond with, well, in the beginning, it can be like that. And at one point, I felt like I had this giant neon 14 in my brain, like flashing at him. I've been practicing for 14 years. I'm not a beginner. Once I was leaving his room, and I thought, why did everyone say he was such a great teacher? You know, he never, like, says anything. All he ever says is, well, in the beginning, it can be like that. And then one day, of course, I know the phrase, as you all do, but one day something shifted inside of me so that the thought of being a beginner, of having beginner's mind, was not really like a problem. And I thought, oh, right. You're supposed to be like a beginner, right? (laughs) Haven't I been saying that for 14 years (laughs) or more? Of course, it's not something that is is, you know, happening awkwardly at the beginning that you're trying desperately to surmount and get beyond. There is that quality of openness, of willingness to experience fully, of not having, not being jaded in a way. And I was, truth be told, kind of jaded. I've been practicing for 14 years. I had a lot of ideas at that point. All right, I know what's happening next. I know this will last about this long, or what's this doing here? You know, I've been practicing for 14 years. I should have gotten rid of this long ago, surely. Now I get to say, I've been practicing for 40 years. I should have gotten rid of this long ago. But it's the same mindset, right? And I thought, right. I can step into a much greater openness and real presence with whatever... I'm experiencing without that overlay of assumptions and suppositions and projections. It's good to be a beginner. So, of course, that's the day I went in to see him, and he said something else entirely. (laughs) We went on from there. He actually was and is a very great teacher. So I would urge you to consider both of those in launching upon this retreat to enter not so much as an expert, but with an openness of mind and heart, and for yourself as a person to see what might be explored, what might be experienced. So I also want to say something about the Buddha sitting behind me. Um, I began my own meditation practice in January of 1971 in Bodh Gaya, India. I'd gone to India, as many of you know, Uh, through college. I'd been a a student at the State University of New York at Buffalo, and they had an independent study program where if you created a project that they approved of, you could go anywhere in the world, theoretically just for a year, and then you'd come back and finish school. So I had a kind of chaotic but very deep yearning to learn how to meditate. And I created a project. I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And this was 1970. It's kind of what education looked like then. And they said, sure, go. So I took my student loans and my scholarships, and I went off to India. And and it took me about three months to find just the kind of situation that I was looking for. I didn't want anything highly philosophical. I certainly didn't want anything dogmatic or involving like becoming a Buddhist, becoming anything, or rejecting anything else. I wanted to know if there were practical, pragmatic, direct tools that I might utilize that would actually help me be a whole lot happier than I was. And so it did take a while to kind of check out these different places, these different teachers. And, and finally, in Bodh Gaya, 
I found really exactly what I was looking for. But Gaia is the town that has grown up around the descendant of the tree it is said the Buddha was sitting under when he became enlightened. So it's a really extraordinary place. And uh, perhaps because of that, of being there, it always resonated very strongly with me that just as the tradition says, the Buddha was a human being. And he had some very deep questions about the nature of life. He questioned, in effect, what does it mean to be born into a human body, to be an infant, so fragile, so affected by the actions of those around you. What does it mean to grow up, to get older, to get sick, to die, whether you want that or not? And is there a quality of happiness that will not shatter as the body goes through these changes? And what does it mean to have a human mind? where you might wake up in the morning and you're frightened and then you're joyous and then you're doubtful and then you're full of faith and then you're angry and then you're sorrowful and then you can't seem to successfully say, okay, I've decided I'm never going to be afraid again. It's like, good luck, right? It doesn't mean there's nothing we can do in terms of the body or in terms of the mind, but that idea of somehow getting absolute control or domination is not going to happen. And so, is there a quality of happiness, again, that will not shatter, will not break, as the cascade of emotions and impressions, thoughts, images, comes and goes? And it said that anything he found, as an answer to that, he found through the power of his own awareness. And so can we. So it was very touching to me always. Like, I was 18 years old, I'd gone to India, and you could kind of point, oh yeah, that's, that's where the Buddha sat and became enlightened. Or that's where the Buddha um, had the milk rice, the rice pudding, uh, before he went over to the tree. And that's where he did this, and that's where he did that. So it was like, uh, it was a very strong sense of presence in a way. Not a kind of alien, exotic, supernatural being. So the humanness of the Buddha was always very important to me. And... Um, the symbols were very important to me. The hand gesture of the, the Buddha statue behind me is a very famous one where um, it's said that the Buddha then, the Bodhisattva, the being determined to be enlightened, sat down under the tree, and this is the legend that uh, is like the myth around the, the enlightenment of the Buddha. And then sitting there, he was attacked by this legendary figure called Mara. And Mara's goal was to get the Bodhisattva to give up, to get up, and just say, can't do it. So Mara attacked with these you know, beautiful, lustful images and sounds, horrible shrieking sounds, trying to frighten him, and rainstorms and all these things. And throughout it all, the Bodhisattva just sat there. And then the last attack of Mara was basically self-doubt. Mara more or less said, especially if you're from New York, who do you think you are? <laughs> to even dare to imagine you can have a free mind, that you can break through the veils of conditioning and, and be that happy in a, in a way, that loving, uh, that connected. Who do you think you are? And in response, they say the Bodhisattva reached his hand over his knee and touched the earth. And he called upon the earth to bear witness to, as they would say, the many lifetimes in which he had practiced qualities like generosity and patience and kindness that gave him a right to be sitting there with that big an aspiration. And as the legend goes, the earth shook. In response, Mara knew he had lost, he ran fleeing into the night, the Bodhisattva sat through the night, and at the appearance of the first morning star at dawn, he became enlightened, he became the Buddha. And as a result, here we are in central Massachusetts all these <laughs> centuries later. But that symbolism has always meant a lot to me. We have a right to be here. We have a right to a big aspiration, not to settle, not to feel we're so incapable or so unworthy. If we got this far, we can do it. This is the hard part, is even being interested. 
right? So all of that was very meaningful to me, and yet it wasn't in the context ever, and still is not, of thinking of myself as a Buddhist. They say when we look at a Buddhist statue, we're looking at a human being. So we're looking at something about the capacity of the human mind and heart to be free, to be wise, to be connected. We look at a Buddha to see ourselves because we too have that capacity. And it's not a sense of like, yeah, the Buddha and I were really together, everybody else is out of luck. We look at the Buddha to see ourselves and we look at ourselves to see all beings, to realize that that tremendous innate connection we all have in this world. So when we first... uh, Well, first I'll say the first night of my first retreat, which was January of 1971, uh, my teacher opened by saying the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught a way of life. And that was very, very reassuring to me. That was was exactly what I was looking for, was really methodology. Um, And so when we opened IMS, which was February of 1976... we had a lot of debates about everything. I mean, this was a very pioneering institution. There were no centers, zero, in this country that had been started or run by Westerners. And everything, everything was a discussion. You've all seen, of course, the word meta up above the doorway, M-E-T-T-A. We bought the place. It was owned by the Catholic Church. It was run by the Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. And that's what it said up above the doorway, Fathers of the Blessed Sacrament. And so we asked someone to get up on a very cold day on a very tall ladder, and we said, please rearrange those letters so it says something about us and about what we represent in the world. And so they came up with Metta, M-E-T-T-A. And then the debate began. Should we keep it up? It's not English. Well, you know, we're not in Asia anymore. Why don't we have a word everyone understands? No one understands that word. And the point of view that wanted it to stay up really prevailed, which I was very happy about because it was my point of view. And <laughs> I don't always prevail here. And then we had this big discussion. The way we framed it is, looking back, it's very, very funny. But the way we expressed it was, should we have Buddhas in public places? Because for many of us, that symbol was something we cherished. And it was a reminder about ourselves and about, you know, again, the possibility of, of a human being. But obviously, since the most, the most powerful ethic was, this is not about becoming a Buddhist. Um, it just seemed, should we do it? Should we not do it? What should we do? We don't know what to do. And then uh, one day this U-Haul pulled up, and it turned out that Jack Cornfield, when he'd been in Thailand, had been an incredible shopper. <laughs> and like all these Buddhas came out of the U-Haul. So we had like a collection of these incredible Buddhas. So we said, let's put them out. So it still remains uh, something of a point of controversy sometimes, but uh, I like that decision too. So that's two I've prevailed in. I begged them not to change the names of these buildings because I knew I'd never remember. So uh, when somebody says Bodhi House, I said, what's that? And I lost that one. But anyway, uh, back to Buddhas in public places. So I hope that... um, As with everything in this environment, uh, it's an effort to try to support you and help you uh, really let go and be here in a full-on way and be able to use everything, the community, the the techniques, um, to really have as deep an experience as possible. So I'd also like to add my voices to the welcomes and very happy to be here. It took me three or four days of flight cancellations to get here from Mexico. I was supposed to go to San Francisco, but couldn't make it. So 
came here in my flip-flops and t-shirts and got some great donations from the Dharma Salvation Closet. If you haven't discovered it, it's down below the building over there, whose name I think has changed to Shanty House. <laughs> so, um, and like myself, the, often the hardest work of a retreat is getting to a retreat, finishing up the business and the emails and the phone calls and leaving messages and the cat sitters and so once that's all done, actually now you've arrived, you can take a big out breath and relax. And as Christina pointed to, you're well fed, you have people cooking for you and cleaning and taking care of everything that needs to be taken care of. So you can really just drop in and be here and unplug. What a great thing to unplug, to get away from technology as beautiful and wonderful and amazing as technology is, is, it's flooding our brains with what one sociologist put, we live in a state of constant partial attention. Our attention is constantly divided between two or more things. And the net result of that, as we see in our practice, is our attention is very scattered, as is the people you probably work with who struggle with simple concentration. So we get the chance here to simplify, to renounce many things, and to, especially in the first couple of days, to calm, to steady, to gather these disparate forces of the mind. And what a joy to have the simplicity of your only job here is to be present, is to simply be here now with awareness and with kindness. Pretty simple, not so easy at times, but simple. And so whenever you're wondering, what are you doing here? Why am I here? What am I supposed to be doing? There's all these different instructions and paying attention to this and that. And Oh, I just have to be present to this. Whatever's here in front of me, whatever arises, beautiful and challenging, can I be here with a kind attention. Just that. I was not long ago teaching a a mindfulness teacher training in Europe. And one of the things we kept uh, reiterating to people who were on that training was uh, the power of your teaching, the effectiveness of your work comes from your practice. It really comes from the depth of your own understanding. And so for those of you, which I think is most of you who are engaged in some kind of mindfulness-based intervention, um, just to reiterate the, the value of really coming here for your own practice and deepening in that, trusting in the goodness of your own practice. Because anything that arises out of that in terms of teaching, sharing these practices, it comes from the depth of your own understanding. And it's easy when, and I know this for myself as a teacher, when I'm taking a course or a training or I'm studying something, it's easy for the the teaching therapist part of us to be more active than the student and the yogi. It can can actually intervene from actually just dropping into the, the discipline and the simplicity of the practice. And then trusting in your practice that whatever needs to unfold out of that in your therapy practice, in your teaching, that will unfold as it needs to. The other thing I think about when I'm here, and and also from that course, but also many other trainings, I did a a training for mindfulness-based, people doing mindfulness-based interventions last year. Uh, One of the lovely things I noticed that comes out of uh, these retreats, particularly when there's a, when there's a focus, is a, is a sense of community and sangha that develops, that we all have a similar intention. Our intention here is to practice, to wake up, to be kind, and then to apply, to use these practices in the way that helps others. And so you, maybe you don't know anybody here, or maybe you know one person or you chatted with somebody at dinner, but you can trust in the commonality of the intention here, which is to to practice, to wake up, to deepen our understanding. And so one of the beautiful things about this tradition I love 
is the connection that happens in the silence. That we're creating a temporary monastery here, a temporary temple. And you may never speak to more than a couple of people here, but you may actually feel a profound sense of community, profound sense of connectedness. And I hear this again and again that people say, I I feel sometimes more connected in the silence than I do when we're chit-chatting over lunch. That there's some, we feel each other, we sense each other in the silence. And so in support of that, um, one of the things that we ask you to, uh, to engage in is the practice of the five precepts, the five ethical guidelines that the Buddha said are really the foundation for living wisely, living kindly, living without harm, living a blameless life that actually brings a lot of contentment in the mind and heart and actually also a quiet joy. And they make some, sometimes the challenge of the complex ethical decisions, it's a, they're a beautiful reference point for navigating these things in our lives. And of course, the foundation of them is the first ethical guideline, which is to refrain from harming anyone or any living thing, to practice kindness, to refrain from killing, but to really, the, the, the essence is refraining from harm ourselves, with our words, with our actions, with others, and with life. In this case, it would be refraining from killing any living thing. I hope you don't kill each other. We're practicing restraint. Um, but there are you know, bugs and critters and things, not a lot alive right now in New England in the winter. But to practice this spirit of kindness and non-harming to yourself, to others, to all life, because the most sacred thing to life is life itself. So the second foundation, the second precept is the practice of restraining, not taking that which hasn't been freely offered or freely given. And so again, we're building this container of trust. It's, it's harder for us to drop into practice if we're not feeling safe. And so we, we create safety by respecting each other by respecting each other's property, respecting the property of IMS, not helping yourself to food at three in the morning just because you feel like it or because you don't like tofu and you want to get something else. Um, to actually, we're practicing a sense of simplicity and a sense of renunciation. We give up a lot of things when we come on retreat. We let go of our cappuccinos and our pizza and whatever our little thing is, I just spent some time in Cuba and I got a little attached to Cuban coffee and I know there's no Cuban coffee here. So that's, we just let go and we, we, we practice contentment with what's, with what's offered. It's actually a beautiful inner state. It's, we can perceive it as a, a sense of um, uh, either a lack or a sense of um, denial or something like that, but actually the inner experience is one of letting go and being at ease with whatever is. And we live in a culture where we get to uh, demand our preferences. And on retreat, we're practicing actually seeing those preferences and seeing if we can find a place of ease with whether they're fulfilled or not. So in that light, um, for those of you who have been coming to IMS uh, at least more than once, um, you now notice uh, there are locks on the doors. And if you registered, which I think most of you have done already, you have keys, which I see many of you wearing round your necks, like it's the new IMS uniform. (laughs) And so um, in case you didn't hear, we had some petty theft on the retreat last week and some things were taken, basically money was taken from some rooms. And so in order to protect your safety, uh, IMS has put locks on the doors and we ask that you lock your doors when you're not in the rooms. So just just to create a sense of security. The third guideline is to refrain from any sexual activity while you're on the retreat. So again, we're orienting our attention and our energy inwards. And in our lives, a lot of energy and attention can go through the sexual door, whether it's actual or mental or a sense of preoccupation or orientation uh, towards others. And so we're, we're... inviting that energy, that attention that's, that's so normally externally oriented in our lives, we're inviting the attention to turn within. 
to, to keep our, our attention and our curiosity here rather than looking outside of ourselves. So we practice that sense of um, letting go of that, of any habitual running, any energy, sexually, flirtation, or just that sense of tracking people. And we're staying really with ourselves, which again is a, is a, can feel um, like a sort of relief actually in that practice. The fourth guideline is to refrain from um, any conversation while on retreat, any social conversation. So there will be times where there'll be question and answer periods in the hall. There will be group discussions where you can add, talk and ask about your practice. But the rest of the time, we ask that you commit to noble silence or nobling silence, which is a beautiful practice in itself. And really one of the bedrocks of the retreat and this tradition is the silence. And for those of you who've been on a retreat, how many of you have been on a silent retreat? Just a show of hands. So pretty much most of you um, know the beauty and the depth and the profundity. It's one of the things that I most cherish in this time is the stillness and the calm and the serenity and the clarity that arises out of, out of that silence. It's a, it's a portal. It's often a doorway to sensing the, the deeper silence in things. There's a certain quality in the nature of reality which is silent and it allows us to access a certain depth, a certain mystery. And it also has a very practical function of uh, we're not stirring and stimulating our minds so much. And so with, without that agitation that comes from conversation and arguing and emailing and all that stuff, our mind gets to settle, it gets to calm. So it gets easier to stay more present here with our direct experience. So again, it can feel like a deprivation, but it's actually a support for our practice and for clarity and stillness and insight. It's hard when, if we do have a genuine insight, if our mind is busy and chattery, it doesn't land on fertile ground. And practice is, is, is one of cultivating the field of our mind so when insights arise, they can take root, they can flourish. So in support of that, um, we very, very strongly want to ask that you turn off your cell phones, you turn off your laptops, it's going to be a long list, you turn off your Androids and you turn off your iPads and you turn off whatever else you brought, the technology, I what else we got, we got a bunch of other things. Whatever technology you brought, please turn it off. Please stick it in your suitcase. And please don't get it out for seven days until the end of the retreat. This is part of the commitment to silence. And again, that can feel like a deprivation. You may feel like you want to stay in touch with people, loved ones or otherwise. Or your, your mind might be saying, well, what's a little text here and there? You know, um, it's, it's, it's a ways that, you know, it's a ways that uh, our attention energy can leak. And it keeps a certain agitation in the system. Am I, you know, the way that we look for that little dopamine rush, did I get, did I get pinged? Did somebody email me? Did someone text me? Right? And I think there's a general uh, culture of addiction around technology. We're all pretty much hooked in and wanting that next ping, even though most of the pings are actually spam or annoying emails, we still look for that stimulation. So frankly, I think it's a great relief that we don't have to deal with that on the retreat. We can leave the emails, leave the Facebook, leave tweeting behind and actually feel what it's like to unplug. It's such a rare experience these days to unplug. I know there's retreats now designed all over the world specifically for unplugging, partly to help people with the addiction around technology. And so we get to see what our mind and heart are like when we're not so um, stimulated in that way. And there may be a feeling of of, uh, fear or anxiety about that, or a fear of, oh, no, I have to be with myself. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) You know, it's hard for us to be stand in line for three, 10 seconds without people's thumbs going, right? We've lost that ability just to simply be. 
So to please leave all tech, turn off all technology. If you don't trust that you're going to do that, hand it into the office. They're happy to keep it for you for the week. And I'm serious about that. We do that at the young adults retreat because they need more support. I um, also want to ask you to not do any reading while you're here. Again, to not unnecessarily stimulate the mind. Um, and then in terms of note writing, um, if you do write notes please to yourself, if you're journaling, please keep them to an absolute minimum. Again, to avoid the stimulating of the mind. Um, and to particularly uh, not write notes to each other. Uh, that can be a phenomenon that can be very disruptive, especially as we go deeper into the retreat. And somebody might leave you a note and we have no idea what state of mind that person is in. So please only write notes to the managers if you need something practical or to us um, for anything Dharma-related. And lastly, to refrain from taking any intoxicants. So to the cloud the mind, so any um, recreational drugs, alcohol of that kind, uh, we're cultivating clarity, wakefulness, and we don't want to take anything that clouds the mind. So that doesn't apply to, of course, um, any uh, medicinal drugs that you need to be taking. Um, so I'm just going to repeat those. You may just want to um, take a moment. I'll repeat. I'll go through each of the precepts, and I'll ask you to commit to each one silently. Knowing how deeply our lives are intertwined, I undertake the ethical guideline from refraining from harming any living being. Knowing how deeply our lives are intertwined, I undertake the ethical guideline to refrain from taking anything that hasn't been freely given. Knowing how deeply our lives are intertwined, I undertake the ethical guideline to refrain from any sexual activity while on the retreat. Knowing how deeply our lives are intertwined, I undertake the ethical guideline to practice noble silence on the retreat. Knowing how deeply our lives are intertwined, I undertake the ethical guideline to refrain from taking any intoxicants that cloud the mind and cause heedlessness. So the last period in this uh, evening, we'll do some sitting, but if you want to just uh, stretch a little for a moment, if you need to stand or just stretch out your legs, we'll only sit for maybe 10 minutes or so, but I know you've been sitting now for over an hour. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.